0: There remain political actors who don't feel like they can control the level of migration because of protections for asylum seekers, and their solution is to try to keep people from entering the country in the first place.
1: Welcome to the podcast of Earth Refuge, the world's first legal think tank dedicated to climate migrants. I'm Nikoleta Vasileva, volunteer correspondent and legal researcher, and I present to you our latest interview as part of our FACES series. This time, we welcome Dr. Anna Altman, who currently teaches two human rights modules at University College London. Her current research focuses on refugee status determination procedures, as well as on the provision of asylum for victims of gender-based or sexual violence in the United States. She is also a committed advocate for displaced people and migrants regardless of immigration status and we will talk about all of this in just a moment. Please take a second to follow us and rate our podcast. You will get new episodes automatically, and you will also help us reach more listeners. Thank you so much if you do, and we hope you enjoy this interview. We are very thrilled to welcome Dr. Anna Altman with us today. She is a lecturer and researcher in international human rights with a focus on the politics of refugees and asylum. She has worked with several refugee resettlement agencies in the United States and currently she teaches two modules on the politics of human rights at University College London. Welcome, Dr. Oatman.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Your research is fascinating. It covers both the politics of refugee and asylum, and also you touch upon some legal basics as well. All of this is of crucial importance to climate migrants and their future protection. However, Let's start with the basics. How can we distinguish between the key terms relating to migration and use them correctly? We hear about migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, displaced people, but they don't quite mean the same thing, do they?
0: They don't, although it is also the case that an individual could be all of those things, often many of them at the same time. And most of these terms have some legal significance and some conceptual significance. So that's why we distinguish between them. So a migrant generally is somebody who has moved from internationally from their country of origin or perhaps from internally from the place where they originate. I myself am a migrant because I live in the United Kingdom now, was born in the United States. A refugee is a particular class of migrant who has legal status, entitling them to protection in another country. And typically we refer to people as refugees if they have gone through the legal process of receiving that debt designation. And what that designation basically means is that there's somebody who has left their country of origin and can't return or can't be expected to return because if they were to return to the country they come from, they're at risk of persecution on the basis of a protected characteristic, a protected political characteristic. So an asylum seeker is somebody who has arrived on the territory of another country, is requesting status as a refugee, and is in the midst of that process, that legal or administrative process. We sometimes use the broader term displaced person or or forced displacement to describe the broad category of people who are migrants that didn't, in any meaningful sense, choose to migrate. Uh, They were forced to migrate due to circumstances outside of their control. And perhaps those are issues of political persecution and violence. Perhaps they're issues related to environmental degradation and climate change related to economic need as well. So that's the kind of more expansive category. Now, just to confuse things even more, you know, when I talk about refugees, I generally use the term refugee as analogous to forced displacement. And the reason I do that is because the outcome of the refugee status determination procedure is significant for whether somebody gets legal status as a refugee. But the population of people that we're talking about is fundamentally the same. And as I'm sure we'll get to in a bit, you know, the issue with designating people as climate refugees hits against all sorts of legal issues with the designation of refugee status. But often we're talking about a similar population of people, people who have fled their homes for reasons outside of their control because they had to.
1: Thank you very much for this very exhaustive and simplified explanation of uh, quite a quite complicated issue. I think this was very useful. As we covered some of the things that we need to know about migration and the key terms, how about some things that we think we know, but we don't? So what are some common misconceptions about migrants and refugees in general?
0: Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> I think there are some good faith misconceptions that most people have and I also think that there is a decent amount of misinformation about refugees and those are both things that we need to correct. I mean I think a major misconception is that it's somehow easy or straightforward to get refugee status if you need it or relatedly that you know there's a population of people that we could objectively say if we just had enough information are worthy of refugee status and protection and that those people can get that protection and the real issue we're, we're facing is that there are folks asking for protection who don't need it or don't deserve it. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the migration situation that the world faces today, which is that we have complex populations of people who are displaced for a number of different reasons and getting refugee status is important for their protection, but that isn't necessarily the best way of describing you know, the reasons that they fled or who those people are or what their needs are. And I do think there's a misconception that if you could only show that you are a true refugee in some kind of objective sense, that you have good access to protection. I think another misconception is also that the countries that receive refugees or that refugees would like to uh, be resettled to high capacity industrialized democracies like the UK or the United States That those countries are at or near their capacity to host people, and that um, you know, there's this fear that if we have more generosity towards migrants or displaced people, there's uh, you know this language of the floodgates opening, and there's this risk that ever more people are going to want to migrate, and that we're we're coming up against the the edge of our capacity to host people. I don't think that that's accurate. I think that capacity is a political question, right? We can decide to devote more resources to protecting people, to devote more resources to refugee status determination actors who make the decisions about who gets refugee status. And we know that there's a long backlog of people waiting for their cases to be heard in countries like the UK and the US. We can solve that with more resources, right? We're not hitting up against our capacity in in any meaningful sense, you know, Lebanon is at capacity, right? Turkey is at capacity. Countries with huge numbers of displaced people from their neighboring countries, countries like the US and the UK could choose to allocate more resources to help people. And there wouldn't be negative consequences for them economically or socially, so much as the political consequences of doing that. There are people within those countries who oppose immigration, but those are two different things.
1: Indeed. And I think numbers and statistics with regard to refugee flows and migration play a very big role with regard to the overall discourse and how people and general public perceive migrants or refugees. And you've mentioned before the perceptions in the global north and how actually they did not adequately represent the disproportionate acceptances of refugees in the global south, for example, as you currently mentioned. So are there some, some numbers that we need to hear and understand better in context? Because I've seen even some political messages in the UK about uh, the percent of refugees and, and migrants that they accept from all over the world compared to other countries. But when you actually compare this to other data, it's really not, not as much as it seems.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and I apologize that I don't have specific figures in front of me. But it, but one thing we know for sure is that the vast, vast majority of displaced people are in the global South. The UNHCR, I believe, is estimating somewhere around 70 or 80 percent rate. Now, many of those people don't have formal refugee status or formal asylum seeking status. And so one kind of misleading use of figures that sometimes goes on is, is basically suggesting that You know, people who who are designated as refugees because they've gone through these processes might look like a relatively high proportion are in countries in the global north because those are the countries that do refugee status determination domestically. But when we're looking at raw numbers of displaced people, again, they tend to be clustered in the global south. Another way that this can get a little confusing in the numbers within a country like the U.K. and the U.S., Is this distinction between resettling refugees and accepting asylum seekers? So refugees can be resettled in the sense that they're stuck in a refugee camp somewhere and a country like Australia or the US agrees to give them status and and help them move to Australia or to the US. That only applies to about 1% of, of displaced people in the world will ever be resettled in another country. But of people who get resettled, most of them end up in. US, Canada, Australia, countries in Western Europe. So it's easy for those countries to point to that and say, well, we're resettling more refugees than other countries in the world. But again, that's a very small proportion, you know, of, of displaced people even get that opportunity ultimately. So I do think there's a there's a little trickery being done there in in the way that policymakers will sometimes talk about these things.
1: Indeed. And In a way, our perception can also have an impact on the protection that migrants or displaced people seek. And as you mentioned, this 1%, for example, we expect up to 1 billion climate migrants in the next three decades. So we can do the calculations ourselves as to how many people will not receive this resettlement option. And with regard to climate migrants in particular, they don't fall within the legal scope of refugees, and by extension, there is no well-established protection for them, as they don't flee persecution, but extreme weather events and other climate change-related circumstances. However, their lives are still put at risk. But how effective are actually the current refugee protection mechanisms to begin with? What are some issues with it that may or may not also affect climate migrants in the future?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, one issue is that or uh, the foundational issue really is that is that refugee status is governed by an international legal definition of a refugee that uh, that as you said is somebody who who fears persecution on the basis of a protected political category, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, and political opinion. And so when you apply for asylum in a country and try to make the case that you deserve refugee status, you have to show that you personally are at fear of that kind of political per- persecution. There's a lot of problems with that. Now, it is for folks who are able to, to prove that and, and make their way through that system. You know, That's, that's wonderful. And those are people who, are, who should be entitled to protection under international law. But clearly, that's a very narrow slice of people who are in need of protection and people who are displaced. It doesn't include folks who are fleeing, you know, generalized violence, a situation of civil conflict, a situation of extreme poverty where they themselves aren't necessarily being targeted. Now, some interesting kind of legal work that the UN and that other international actors have done around climate refugees is try to think about how possibly a climate migrant could fit within that definition. And, you know, there's a sort of second order fear of persecution that might come from a natural disaster or environmental degradation that is exacerbating social problems within a country. And so we might think, okay, you know, this person isn't fleeing just because they're at risk of danger due to a natural disaster. But that climate change has so degraded governance in the country they come from that their country can't protect them from political violence. But again, that's a very particular that might apply to some people, but not to, you know, the majority of of climate migrants. So in much the same way that I think that this refugee definition excludes lots of people who aren't climate migrants, but also don't fit into that particular definition themselves. It's, you know, it's great that we're doing the legal legwork to try to make space for climate migrants in this legal definition, but it's not going to be sustainable, right? Because again, it's trying to shoehorn that particular social problem into a legal definition that maybe isn't appropriate for it in the first place.
1: Some experts think that expanding the definition of refugees to cover climate migrants as well could hinder the protections that refugees receive currently. So there are issues with that as well. And as we covered some of the migration-related terms, and we touched upon the effectiveness of protection, how does the protection you receive differ depending on your status as your committed advocate for displaced people and migrants, regardless of their immigration status, can you tell us a little bit about that? How does it impact your life and your well being in different aspects, be it COVID 19 in the United States and immigration or just in general?
0: Yeah. So, you know, in some ways compared to it's really not reasonable to talk about anyone in this population as having (laughs) meaningful privilege. But compared to other displaced people who don't have status, having refugee status can be like a golden ticket because that is your pathway to legal status and to rights before the law in the country where you are. Uh, Many people who are displaced and seek asylum and don't receive it become undocumented in that country, or they're forced to leave and to return to a dangerous uh, situation for them. So that in and of itself is a huge distinguishing factor. But there's also, I think, a key issue, and this relates to, to the pandemic as well, is that refugee status gives people the ability to live a life with certainty and dignity in the country where they are. You know, countries have talked, have thought a lot about instituting basically temporary refugee status or temporary protected status as a kind of stopgap between changing the refugee definition. So saying, okay, this person or this population may not qualify for refugee status under the law, but let's not send them back to a dangerous context while that context is ongoing. The U.S. has done this recently for uh, Venezuelans who have fled the political unrest and economic unrest there. And That is great as far as it goes, but again, doesn't create a lot of certainty or stability in the lives of people whose status is basically up for grabs every year or two or whenever these things are renewed. It certainly subjects it to a lot of political kind of arbitrary forces, right, if somebody comes into office who's less interested in offering this protection. So, you know, for the situation that we have, getting refugee status is the goal of people because it creates this stability. Does that mean that it's the perfect policy solution? Not necessarily, but that certainly distinguishes the access that different populations have.
1: And as we distinguish between the differences in your status and the protection that you receive, I'm also curious to hear what you think about the role of protected characteristics in one's experiences as an asylum seeker or a migrant. We know that, for example, women or people from other vulnerable groups are disproportionately affected by climate change, and this also applies to other issues. So as part of your work, you look at the impact of gender in asylum applications. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a few ways that gender is really significant and I think kind of under-theorized from a legal perspective. I, I mean, there is no baked in protection from persecution on the basis of your gender in the refugee convention. So gender is not included as a protected political ground that you might be persecuted on. Countries will and and often do interpret the particular social group category as inclusive of gender as well as sexual orientation and gender identity, but it's much less of a stable pathway for protection because, you know, it's up to particular adjudicators or judges to decide that that applies. And so, you know, creating legal space for people who are the victims of gender or sexual based violence or persecution on the basis of their gender identity or sexual orientation, that's hugely important. And that's kind of an ongoing project of refugee scholars and of, of legal advocates is making that space they're you know, kind of two steps forward, one step back, especially in the US over the past four or five years in which a lot of the legal avenues for protection on that basis were kind of stripped. So you're absolutely right that you know to the extent that gender kind of multiplies other vulnerabilities or is a vulnerability that can be multiplied by things like climate change, this is a huge concern. I also think that there's space for kind of theoretical gendered analysis of uh, our notions of refugee status in the first place which is that we or adjudicators i think and you know the collective we in how we think about what refugees are really has expectations of a kind of victimhood that we expect asylum seekers and refugees to perform in a certain way and i think that can be gendered it's sort of You know, we we expect refugees to be people who have suffered, who don't have their own political agency or their own political goals, who are kind of neutral and perhaps voiceless in some ways. So I think that in a broader sense, there's space for us to kind of reconsider what we expect of displaced people or people in need in terms of the kind of victims that are able to access these kinds of protections.
1: It is so important that you mentioned that the notion of victimhood when it comes to the status you receive or whether your application is approved. At the same time, we expect asylum seekers to be victims and to fall within the definition of the perfect victim. But then again, we could easily refuse to grant them the refugee status they deserve based on political considerations or a very strict definition that we do not wish to accommodate to the current case. And as you mentioned, adjudicators, I will now touch upon your current research, which I'm very excited to hear more about. So you do a marvelous job studying the factors that affect the likelihood of an asylum application being granted. And you draw the conclusion that the question of who makes the decision is key. Would you share a bit more about that and maybe provide some case studies to show us an example?
0: Sure. I mean, my my current research actually looks at this on a kind of aggregate level. And so what I can show is that countries that have more robust judicial protections for asylum seekers during the asylum process, including access to appeal, access to judicial review of asylum decisions, do in fact admit a higher number of asylum seekers. But my project is also interested not just in the outcome of the asylum decisions, but what the political consequences of those institutions are. And the other thing that I argue is that it is, unfortunately, exactly in those countries that have those more robust judicial protections or under regimes within those countries, so during periods in which those judicial actors are more empowered, that are also the countries that tend to enact policies meant to deter asylum seekers from, from entering the system in the first place. And the reason for this is that there may be those judicial protections for folks, but there remain political actors who, who don't feel like they can control the level of migration because of protections for asylum seekers. And their solution is to try to keep people from entering the country in the first place. And we've seen tons of examples of this, especially over the past decade. The use of offshore detention facilities by countries like Australia, like the US in the 1990s. There's been proposals for this in the UK and in other European countries as well, where the idea is that people who arrive to apply for asylum will be detained outside of the country for the duration of, of their case. And that uh, the hope, uh, sometimes made explicit by policymakers, sometimes implicit, is that. Basically, the pain and the suffering of having to go through that detention process will deter people from wanting to apply for asylum in the first place. So, the kind of disturbing conclusion that I've sort of drawn from this research project, at least, is that, you know, there are ways within countries that we can make protection for asylum seekers more robust. We can invest in adjudicators of a certain kind, right? It's important. For example, to have a sort of inquisitorial process rather than an adversarial legal process, which is precisely what we do have in the United States. But ultimately, political actors are also making decisions that affect the, the quality of life of people who are applying for asylum in their countries. And they're using these ideas of deterrence basically to try to make life kind of miserable for folks in the hopes that that deters them from attempting to apply for asylum there in the first place. I think that it's pretty clear that the language that has come from the current British government as well reflects this deterrent kind of attitude that we can lower the level of refugees that we take in simply by making us a less desirable location.
1: Exactly. Apart from the legal perspective, it is also important to take into account national policies and how, how migration influences the political discourse and vice versa you mentioned the UK, we have seen also, for example, in the Brexit campaign, how likely it was based on misconceptions and some of uh, the misconceptions that we covered earlier. In the United States, the new Biden administration has sought to improve the legacy it was left with by the previous Trump administration when it comes to both immigration policies and climate change in action. Yet, Their current proposals do not envisage any viable climate change displacement solutions. You've also touched upon how it would be rather unrealistic to expect such decisions to be taken in a vacuum. How can we improve advocacy and activism, and what should we take into account to do that? in order to use those political considerations to our advantage and to help improve the experience of migrants and asylum seekers?
0: This is such a hard question. You know, my first instinct is always to rationalize why migration is a good thing. And it is. I mean, it broadly is. And there are reasons that migration is a good thing for basically economic, neoliberal economic reasons that many countries who are immigrant receiving are actually in need of labor force, that we know that immigrants, broadly speaking, are net contributors to the social welfare state, that there are all of these reasons we can state that a country's political economy would benefit from more open immigration in, in a number of different ways. That's a very convincing argument to some people. I don't know that that is the strategy that activists should necessarily be taking. I mean, because it reinforces that for somebody's for us to justify protecting people who need protection, we also have to make the case that it would be good for us to take these people in. And again, that's a very convincing case to some people, but I just worry that over time, it kind of degrades our solidarity with displaced people that, and as we talked about before, you know, that the expectation is that migrants and in particular refugees, you know, are above reproach and as individuals and as a community. And and it's not realistic and it's not really fair. I mean, the bottom line is that when people are displaced They have to go somewhere. Right. And, and, you know, that's, it's a different way of thinking about the public good. And I, you know, again, I think in individual conversations we have about this, you know, you have a relative who's who's maybe a fence sitter when it comes to migration, you can explain to them that there are that in fact, it's not the case that migrants take people's jobs, for example, or, you know, are a drain on public finance. But is that the way that we should think about advocacy more broadly? I'm just not sure. I think this is a valid suggestion
1: as we can engage in advocacy on so many levels. It is in one way with your family, with the people around you who you wish to share your beliefs with. At the same time, professionally, probably different arguments should be used. The messages that we send to the general public as well. But I think this is a valid point overall. And and that's it really we need to adapt depending on the audience and the goal that we want to achieve and to still not forget the political arguments as well in order to prepare our counterpoints and demonstrate why migration is not such a bad thing
0: i would add to that also that you know there's work we <laughs> there's work we have to do on ourselves as well in the sense that Climate migration is an existential problem, right? When we think about what the next 10, 20, 50 years are going to look like in terms of displacement, it's a whole new world. I mean, the level of displacement, the diversity of displacement, the diversity of needs, I think that, you know, we all kind of have to be open to the possibility that this is going to require a lot more work and a lot more rethinking of our institutions than the kind of incremental policy solutions. For example, you know, extending temporary protected status that I am glad has happened in the United States. Goodness knows it, it is a relief to the people that are getting protection through that. It's a stopgap and it's not a creative solution to what ultimately is this, you know, a, an ex- existential problem that is going to require more creative thinking.
1: Indeed, change starts from within and it is already happening on a global level. So it's, it's high time we started doing it one by one yesterday. So, so far, we focused more on some misconceptions that society has in general how activists can improve so as to be of more help, how each of us as a citizen can do their own part. However, is there something that an individual seeking asylum for any reason, internally or or externally, should take into account? Your research is, as I already mentioned, fascinating and so practical. So I was wondering if there are certain takeaways that you think could be useful for displaced persons or communities facing the risk of displacement.
0: Mm -hmm well i think that often oftentimes displaced people don't have a lot of agency over where they end up seeking protection and and you know they are ultimately at the mercy of the institutions that they encounter when they're seeking protection you know we you can illustrate, you know, through case studies that there are more or less generous systems, right? It's very easy for me to kind of look at the Canadian refugee status determination system next to the American one and see the ways in which I think the Canadian system is more generous because this it has this non-adversarial process, it has these opportunities for appeal. If you have the option, you know that obviously you would want to seek asylum in a place with more conducive institutions, but that's often not the case. I mean, I think that one thing, very practically speaking, that, you know, asylum seekers need to do is have very tight documentation of their personal case. So, for example, you know, if you're somebody who is considering fleeing uh, a situation where you're being persecuted for your sexual orientation, to whatever extent you can document persecution that you faced, adjudicators are going to be looking for that for the kind of story that you tell. So, you know, these are all things that people who are in a position to make those choices will want to err on the side of caution and, and, and sort of over-documenting. But again, most or many people who, who end up being displaced don't have the opportunity to kind of to gather that information. They are ultimately at the mercy of those institutions. Now, once you arrive in a country where you're applying for asylum, I would say that civil society and that sort of private institutions or NGOs are a huge resource. So, you know, lean heavily, heavily on volunteer associations, on NGOs, local actors in the area where you arrive. They'll often organize, you know, volunteer groups. Often religious communities are actually a really important resource for refugees. So, you know, these are ways that you can improve your lot once you are displaced. But again, to the extent that people have agency over these choices, it's hard to say.
1: It is actually so rare that someone seeking asylum has a wide variety of choices to make. It is sadly something we often do. We assume that if a person has a choice, or if they can reach one country, but then decide to go to another, that something is wrong, or maybe they're undeserving of their refugee status, which is so unfair, given the fact that even if you receive a refugee status, which so many people who need it don't, it still doesn't undo all the harm that you have suffered so far. It still doesn't give you your life back. It still doesn't make any better the journey that you were forced to take to get wherever you got successfully. And hopefully you were fortunate enough to do so. But still, the, the suggestions that you gave are very useful. Hopefully, they will help someone. And as our mission is here at Earth Refuge to amplify the voices of displaced communities, to empower them and to equip them with the knowledge they need, legal or not, I think this is a great note to end on. So thank you so much, Dr. Altman, for the time, all the advice that you gave us as activists or as people at the risk of displacement, potentially. It is really much appreciated.
0: Thank you so much. And, and thanks also to Earth Refuge, Amina. I mean, I love what you guys are doing. And this is really important work.
1: Thank you so much. We appreciate it that's it for this week's interview we hope you found it useful and we invite you to share it with your friends colleagues and anyone whom it might help you can find out more about the work of earth refuge on our website earthrefuge.org as well as on our social media pages apart from our faces interview series we also publish weekly articles and cover all current affairs that have to do with climate migration Thank you for recognizing the importance of this issue and supporting our mission. Until next time!